Greetings. Hi, this is Teresa Willard Hughes, and I want to thank each of you for taking the time to listen to us. I want to apologize. I had promised to get this podcast inter- done, the second interview on, out about two weeks. But like many of you, I was caught in the struggle to the core of our, our beads and who we are as individuals at the senseless murder of George Floyd. It hurt me to the core. As a mother of the African-American sons, the thought of him crying out for his mother in his last breath was challenging. Regardless of the fact that my sons are grown, like all African-American moms, we still have that fear. Regardless of what all that we've done to prepare them, there's still that fear that we too could get that call, that our sons would cry out. Also, the name George Floyd resonated with me because, you see, my grandfather's name was Floyd. But my grandfather's name was Floyd Edwin Willard. And that name, Floyd, just resonated. I remember all the things that teach me about race and how to for being an African-American woman. Or actually, back in those days, a Negro or a colored The first time that, despite the fact that the family were trying to hide the jet magazine, my cousin David and Philip and I found it. I was not quite eight years old. I was a month shy of being eight years old when I first realized that I could die, my cousins could die, for being little Negro kids. Well, how did we know that? Because we saw the mangled body of 14-year-old Emmett Till lying in his casket in the Jet magazine. His mother wanted the world to see what was done to him, and I saw it. At that point, I began to fear being colored. Year, a couple of years later, call, hearing a telephone call and seeing my grandfather cry, I didn't know what was going on until a couple of days later. Come to find out that my great-grandfather, Thomas, died. He was actually murdered. White men who got who get that distinguished wild hair up their ass, maybe we should off a Negro or a nigger. Ended up pushing my great grandfather in front of a roaring train in Kansas. Our family was not able to go back because they feared that my grandfather, coming from California, he too would be subject to being murdered for being uppity and having the nerve to leave. So we ended up going a couple of years later, and as usual, on our trip back to Kansas, going back to the family farm, we had to take pecans. Because as little as Negroes, we were not allowed to go to the bathrooms. The hell, there was no Starbucks. Hell, we couldn't even go to a gas station to be able to pee as we do freely now. There was no place for us. So we had to use pee cans to go back and forth. It was all those small microaggressions that I could remember growing up with that my grandfather tried to shill us from. He tried to shill us from when we were in Kansas, not seeing anybody was white. Why? Because they did not have the decency to call my grandfather Floyd. They didn't have the decency, obviously, to call him Mr. Willard. He was reduced to Zebo. How in the hell he got that name, I will never know. But he refused and he wanted none of us, none of his grandchildren to see him being called by that name. So as I said, the death of George Floyd shook me to the core, as it has all of us, and I apologize for the time. But I also had done an earlier podcast, and I did not include this part, 
and I wanted to make sure that uh, I and everybody else are representative of the senseless murder of George Floyd. And I think more than anything else, as a mom and as an African-American, I am tired. I am just worn out from seeing African-American men die. On, now we're watching it on CNN and other channels. I'm glad that we're hearing about their murders, but I am, do not want to see another black man say he died in real life. So Now, once now I've apologized, let's get on to talk about what we're going to do for this today's podcast. Today's podcast is the second one we're going to do. So it'll be number 11 and number 12 that we're going to do. And we're going to be featuring and talking about the infrastructure, family infrastructure of long-term childhood sexual abuse and violence. If you remember in our first, in our second and third podcast, the second one was the understanding of betrayal. And I talked about what happens in that sense of betrayal once you realize that your family has not has not stood up for you. They have allowed you to be victimized, and there's nothing that you can do about it because you are a small child. But in the third podcast, I introduced you to my buddy for 46 years, Maurice. And Maurice talked to you and I doing the interview about the level of consistency and what can an African-American man do or any man could do to help somebody that they care for that was traumatized by abuse. And what Maurice did for me, and I hope more of you are doing, is that you show up. You show up and you show up consistently and you show that person kindness. We don't like ourselves. We don't believe in ourselves. But your consistency and your kindness and your words of saying, you know, and sometimes not kind words, because Maurice would tell me to get off my ass like real quick and get moving. I would do it. But he told me that I had value. I had words, words that I could not believe that I could hear from myself. But guess what? In our 12th podcast, which you'll hear in about four days from now, because I'm editing and it's already done, you'll hear from an African-American mother, Deborah Lachane. Deborah is the mother that we all want. She is that fierce, grizzly bear mama on steroids grown-ass black woman to the core who made, when she found out that her daughters had been sexually violated, she acted. She acted like you cannot believe. She took charge, and she supported and loved her daughters. And that is a woman. She is my hero. She is a woman that I would like to be. I wanted as a mother who I wanted to be as a mom. She is that woman that we can all look to. So now let's talk about what the podcast for today is. So remember when we looked at the podcast, or not podcast, I'm sorry, the infrastructure. When we looked at the infrastructure, we always put the predator on top, what I call the head predator in charge, HPIC. So in this particular case, we'll use my father for example. So we know who he is. He is the dictator. Here's the thing that you got to remember. And HPIC thinks of himself as a mini despot. He's his own personal little Hitler, his own personal Idi Amin or Cole Pot or whatever dictator that you can think of. That's who he is in his mind. The reality is all those other people had real countries in which they could destroy. 
They had populations in the thousands, if not in the millions, that they could wipe out. The HPIC and our family situation only got us. They only got the kingdom. They only have us to be able to rule and dictate and make our lives visible. We know at any given time, we can hear in the back of our head the tick, tick, tick of the time bomb of this asshole. And you know that when the point of designation, when that bomb goes off, it's going to be on you as this child. But there's nothing you can do. You fight against him. You manage your life. But that ticking time bomb just seems to be constantly going tick, 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 tick in your head. And everybody seems not to hear the ticking but you. But you hear it. It's like an echo chamber in your head. So let's talk about why he's HPIC. He has status within that family. He has embedded himself within the family, either marriage He's like my father, they marry into the family and they take over. There's not a dinner party. There's not anything that he's not in charge of. He cooks the world's worst food, but the son of a bitch is cooking and you got to eat it. You could not look into a family album without seeing his happy, smiling face. If there's Thanksgiving or Christmas, he's carving up the turkey. He has embedded himself and his status of that predator being there is makes him okay in the family. They will do anything to keep him happy because of their identity to the outside world and even within their own world is based on this man. This sexual predator that they know is a sexual predator, but they will base their life and their reputation and do whatever is necessary either to shield themselves from the outside world realizing how horrible he is, or to do anything that they can to keep him happy. So his status is the second tier. So there's the father who's HPIC, his status is the second tier. The third tier is the one that we often don't talk about, and that's the adoring queen. Because God knows that no dictator can really seem to manage his life with some type of woman he has to have. He has to have the adoring queen, the constant bonnie. Oh, isn't he wonderful? In my situation, that adoring queen happened to be my Aunt Dell. In other families, it could be the mother, but it's some maternal figure. And she, for whatever her reasons are, has aligned herself to this man. She knows he's a sexual predator, but he's still her man. And that status of being the missus, or the most significant other, or whoever she thinks that she is in the revolving boyfriends along the way. That status of her having that situation, her status of being the missus is a higher priority than anything that happens to the children within her care. My Aunt Dell, who only, as I mentioned to you earlier, only referred to herself as Mrs. Edward North Haddon, or Ed's wife. She really had a name, but, you know, she was so enamored. This is a woman who prided herself in being married to my father for 53 years. She would sit there and say, oh, I was married. I'm a widow. He's been gone. It's 53 years in marriage. And people go, oh, God, that's a long time. Then if I was around, I would pop up and go, yeah, like everybody should be so goddamn happy being married to a sexual predator to a pedophile for 53 years. So it takes a damper off the 53-year thing. But she had to be reminded. 
But her status as a missus was more important than anything else. She knew he was screwing everybody else. He, she knew that he was screwing a 13-year-old. She knew that he screwed his two younger sisters. She knew that he screwed my mother. She knew he was screwing me. But her status as a missus trumped everything. She would say to me, there are other people out there, but he always comes home to me. Oh, well, send up a flag. Isn't that wonderful? You know he's a sexual predator. He's screwing everybody else, but he comes home to me. That was her identity. It's the person that has the most power in this situation. Is the adoring queen. She, if she had any balls, could say, knock the shit off or the whole marriage is over. She has the power to put an end to it, but she doesn't. She protects him. She blames us. She allows him to do what he wants to do to us as long as he comes home to her. And somehow it's our fault. Never his, and of course never hers. But we, she has the power. So when you go see your therapist, or for those of you who are mental health providers, and one of us says, my father, my aunt, my mother, whatever the maternal figure was, she knew this was happening to me, and she chose, let's remember the word, she chose not to protect me. Do not, under any circumstances, come up with a BS like, oh, she too was a victim. No, she wasn't a victim. When we say she's not a victim, don't argue with We lived it. She wasn't a victim because she chose to be the wife. She chose to allow this to happen. She chose him over us. And imagine how that makes us feel. So those are the first three. The first one is the head predator in charge. His status is number two. She is the adoring queen is number three. So there's only six parts of this whole scenario, and we're designated down to number four, as we talked about before. So here we are, those of us who have been victimized. We don't even rank as number one, two, or three. We're down to four. Why? Because we're interchangeable. They could, they could put any of us in place. It's another cousin. It's another sister. It's another whatever. It's another victim. We are interchangeable. But what makes it so difficult for us is the fact that we know that we were betrayed. Those people who were supposed to protect and love us, they betray us because they want to keep the predator happy. He is the most important thing, and we're betrayed. There's a song about being a motherless child. Lord, 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 do you feel like a motherless child? There is nothing worse in this world being motherless. Maybe if your mom dies, you can feel bad because she's at least a picture. you got a smiling face. But you're a motherless child and that woman's alive. And you see her loving your siblings, but not you. There's a sense of what the hell is wrong with me. I'm 71. I don't have anything to do with my mother. And I really have never had. But there's this sense. There's something within me that says, what was so bad about me? How is it that she didn't love me? What was so wrong with me that my own mother didn't want me? So I, I'm of that generation of that they used to have really bad sci-fi movies. And I mean really bad sci-fi movies. But one of the things when I was about nine or ten, I was so caught off guard with my own mother not wanting me. I had to figure this out. Now, I watched too many shows on TV, Wild Kingdom, whatever, 
And they always talked about the reptile. They give birth and they go off and leave the kid. So I had to figure out and say that my, it's not that my mother didn't love me. She just really wasn't my mother. So again, back to my bad sci-fi movies. I said in my own mind, I made up this story that my beloved mother was really coming to get me the real mother, not the one I was stuck with. She was coming to get me, and then all of a sudden, a spaceship appeared and came down, landed, and abducted my real mother. And I got stuck with this reptilian thing, dressed up looking like so-called my real mother. So I tell this story to my cousins, David and Philip, with complete details, me walking like a space person, coming down with reptilian, and got whapped in the face with the new face coming over Jerry, on dresses on, and I give the whole friggy nine yards. I think I got them. They're looking at me intensely, and I'm thinking they believe this yet. Next thing I know, my cousin David said, uh, Terry, why in the hell would a spaceship land of all places, Richmond, California, and all the people in the world, they picked Jerry. They kidnapped Jerry. I was totally offended. How dare he say that to me about my own mother? who I am now convinced I am stuck with the reptilian. So it takes a few weeks for her to finally come over to my grandparents' house. So I'm looking for beady eyes, seeing where the reptilian skin is like creeping past, and Jerry is my real Jerry. My mother is really in there. I creep too close. I bump her. She slaps the shit off of me, and then I realize David was right. That bitch is really my mother, and I'm stuck with her. And it is that sense of, you're stuck, and this woman doesn't want you. You just really, really never get over it. And you don't really learn mothering skills because you don't know anything about how to be a mother. What you do know how to do is be protective and take care of your children in all the ways that you think that you should. So that's who we are as number four. Number five in this list is a group that people never really talk about, and that's the silent siblings. That's the siblings that know that is going on, or cousins, relatives, other family members. They have remained silent. They know that you're being sexually violated, or they have a rumor that you're being sexually violated, but they don't talk to you about it. And so you're left there by yourself dealing with this. And they will always, always choose to predator over you. Why? Because you don't have a damn bit of power. He, on the other hand, is power. And as Henry Kissinger said years and years ago, power is an aphrodisiac. And people would rather associate with a powerful person than those of us who are being beaten up, sexually violated, and weak. Nobody wants to be around us. And we're alone. And the thing that really hurts is that we are by ourselves. But you think about it as a as a therapist, as a healthcare provider, provider, behavioral health provider, you too see the silent siblings. They are probably, if not more damaged than us. The crap happened to us. We know what happened to us. But imagine the guilt that they must feel knowing that they stood by a sexual predator and they aligned themselves with a sexual predator and chose not to help us. They've seen our crying. They've seen us being abused, or they know of us being abused, but they choose by their own will a predator over us. 
And the next group is the group that I think that we have to think about. And that's who we are. It's the, the fourth group in this, those of us who are victimized. The sixth group is our future, our future generation. What happens to us really dictates what happens to the future generations. Are we able to get an education? Because, were we able to continue school? Did we have to drop out too early? Did we lose that $241,000 over a lifetime that we cannot provide for our children? Has the what we've done to survive health-wise, as I did, the only thing I had control over was my bowels. Did that end up in how sick I've been over the years with indigestion issues? What have they done? Have we put on too much weight early on because we don't, we think that that would deter our predators? How does that play out in diabetes? How does that play out in obesity? How does this play out in our lives long term? Will directly impact our children. Did we learn any parenting skills? Did we be able to meet with other people that we could see along the line that we could pattern ourselves as being parents? Has our anger and our rage has it been able has it manifested so in such a way that it's caused us to be incarcerated? What happens to us is imperative of how we handle it, be able to be able to help the next generation. That's a part of what we do. So as I talk to you about this process, I want us to be able to look at and remember just who the hell we are. We were small children. So if you look at this chart, the odds against us to surviving are really great, but we do. The thing that we have to always remember that we are so much stronger, we're so much more powerful, and we are victorious. If your father or whoever your sexual predator was and your family couldn't beat your ass down when you were 14, 15, and 16, when you're 35, girlfriend, please stand up. It is time to stand up. I don't give a damn if you're standing or you're crawling. You find a way because if that son of a bitch couldn't wear your ass down and take you down as a child, do not allow them to continue doing it now. Remember who you are. Remember the odds in which that you come from and you have found a way. You are finding a voice and this program is for you. It's for us collectively to find our voices, to praise one another, talk to one another, find a means by which that we understand we are so much better than what anybody thought. We are not some damn weak victim. We were victimized. We are not going to be someone's survivor because the Lord knows that's just good. Having some fool throw us a lifeline jacket, got the same outfit on, same fool, maybe got a different hairdo. It's the same asshole. We don't want to be survivors. Own and claim who you are. You are strong. You are powerful. And you are victorious. I'm going to be putting up the infrastructure graph on, on our on our website, strongpowerfulandvictorious.com. Check it out. Provide us with some com comments. And again, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being kind. I want to thank you for standing up. I want to thank you for being strong, powerful, and victorious. God bless you. And you take care of yourselves, my dear. Bye-bye.